Hello and welcome back. This is Untangling with Aureliano Nava. This is my third podcast. Hope you had the opportunity to listen to the first two and that you enjoy this one. I'd like to dedicate this podcast to what the Me Too movement has brought to the surface. I do think that you would agree that this is a continuation of our society moving in a right direction. This is an issue that needed to be addressed a long time ago, sexual harassment in the workplace that does impact the lives of people, their livelihood. The legitimacy of the concerns brought forth by Me Too is not even in question as far as I'm concerned. It's just a expression of something that needed to be addressed and finally maybe we are addressing it as a society. But it does bring some interesting questions that can be asked and should be asked. And that's what I'm going to dedicate this podcast to. Um, the question of when do we know when Me Too is taken too far? As a society, we have addressed other abuses that really took too long to be addressed, but finally we did. We could point to the abuse of child labor and uh, the way workers were treated in work environments and how that was finally addressed and in 1938 with the Fair Labor Standards Act. And we can even point to how sexual harassment in the workplace was addressed with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title VII of that act. And we could even talk about how, <coughs> even with respect to our animals, our dogs and cats, that as society we have moved in the right direction with respect to how we treat these animals because we love them. They have become and do become part of our family. and But also we can see that there's even room there for us to, to improve because, um, well, so many animals are still being abused and we farm them for their flesh and we eat them and uh, we still don't know to what degree these animals are uh, conscient. As I record this podcast, a Buddhist community that was started back in the 1970s by Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. If you're not a Buddhist, you probably have not heard about them. If you are a Buddhist, then you most likely have. Trungpa Rinpoche is credited with being one of the first Buddhists to have properly communicated Buddhism in the West in a manner that Western students could understand and, most importantly, translate into uh, their own direct experience with their own everyday life situation. He left volumes of, well, just excellent teachings. If you have ever read any of his books, I believe you would be in agreement with that. Allegations, sexual in nature, have been filed against 
the present leader of the Shambhala community, the Sakyan Nipam, who is the son of Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche. And these allegations are being, as far as I know, they're being investigated in a fair and open manner by the present leadership council after the resignation of the previous council as a result of these accusations surfacing. Now, these kind of allegations are nothing new to any religious organization. In the recent past, we could recall the massive allegations against priests in the Catholic Church that received such wide media attention. The history in Buddhist organizations is different, and it generally revolves around the misuse of the teacher-student relationship. I could mention here a few of the better-known cases within Buddhist organizations. 80s, for example, with within uh, the Zen community in San Francisco with Richard Baker Roshi and in Los Angeles with Maizumi Roshi and uh, New York with Aido Shiman Roshi um, and also in the 70s and 80s with Aido Tai Shimano and even the Shamal communities um, have gone through a crisis with with um, the Vajra regent Orso Tenzin in the 80s that uh, shook the community. The Inside Meditation Society has also not escaped this experience in the 80s. And even within uh, Hinduism here in the West with Swami Muktananda and the repeated sexual encounters that later were revealed by many of his female students. And in a formal survey done by the Yoga Journal magazine in 1985, where it surveyed 54 teachers, it was revealed that 39 had had sexual relationships with their students, and some even eventually married one of their students. So where does that leave us at present and uh, what can we learn from all this and how can we, with uh, this um, hindsight in mind, perhaps in uh, view the present crisis within the Shambhala community, part of the present criticism that's involved right here with this Shambhala community has to do with the student-teacher relationship that is found in most Tibetan Buddhist schools, not all. Traditionally, one can refer to stories where teachers have severely abused uh, their students, mostly physical abuses that took place, but students stuck it out, and eventually it worked out well for them, and they themselves became... Uh, teachers, renowned teachers, and their stories are even retold to this day and are, are well known. Central to this is the, the freedom, the liberation of that egocentricity that humans are so susceptible to. We are uh, just ego-centered, and Buddhism very much addresses this not only Buddhism, but every single religious institution addresses this, attempts to address this, this 
selfishness, the self-centeredness about us. And each does so in its own unique way. So the uniqueness of how Tibetan Buddhism approaches this and how it's reflected in the student-teacher relationship, it's really what's in question. Again, this student-teacher relationship that is in question here is not common among all Tibetan Buddhist schools. It's only common to some of them. But the concern is that uh, these practices now need to be revisited and examined and criticized and reform them because it is uh, believed they will continue to accommodate these kind of abuses. Open to this kind of criticism is the crazy wisdom, uh, uniqueness of this particular Buddhist school that uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, the founder of the Shambhala community, is so much identified with. It's the uh, unconventional approach of working with students in manners that uh, are uncommon, unique, uh, but meant to erode that egocentricity that uh, I was referring to. It's meant to shock it and to um, breaking it down and to liberating it uh, so that the student is able to, well, see his own experience uh, perhaps more uh, openly, perhaps more freely, perhaps more um, take into consideration its interdependence with its own environment and with others. And it is this aspect, this crazy wisdom aspect of this particular school that I think is being blown out of proportion. If anybody is uh, referring to this practice with respect to the present uh, abuse allegations, I just don't think that they know what they're talking about. I think that is something that uh, occurred perhaps um, back in the even late 80s, perhaps much more so in the late 70s, early 80s. Students were more exposed to, to this because, uh, you know, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche and Orso Tenzin were still alive, but I think after their death, it's not something that I believe students were exposed to, especially with the Sakyam Mipam Rinpoche, the present teacher. I think something else is going on that needs to be explored. At this point, I probably should introduce some context here about this community. If you're not familiar with this community, those that uh, are familiar with this community, uh, you very much are acquainted with this. So even under the present leadership of the Sakyan Mipam, who was very young when his father died and that uh, baton was passed to him, he had to take on the responsibility of hundreds of centers and thousands of, of students. And one can fairly mention that, you know, perhaps he just was not ready, was not properly yet trained. If his father had lived for perhaps uh, 10 more years, uh, he would have had the 
opportunity to have benefited more and uh, his leadership and maturity would have been um, different, but it wasn't the case. Not everyone has that luxury of being well-trained to undertake such level of a responsibility. On top of that, you do have this power concentration, this by tradition focus on uh, knowing the teacher through service, through um, taking on responsibilities in his court, uh, at the center of uh, his innermost circle. And, uh, you know, that one can point to that is, in fact, uh, ripe for the kind of situations where, especially if you have a young teacher, well, and you have female attendants and students that uh, are always around him, goodness, uh, I wouldn't be able to resist the temptation. All right, so... <laughs> My goodness, how many of us males, really, in our 20s or 30s, even 40s, could, if we were to be exposed to uh, female uh, students that were literally uh, fighting for uh, a position in the hierarchy that got them closer to the uh, head of the tradition, uh, I, I just don't think that many of us could dare claim that we would not be vulnerable to taking advantage of such a situation. It has to be said that if you have ever been a witness to what happens when you have quite a competitive environment of students trying to maneuver themselves to get close to their teacher, you have a situation that is quite interesting. You really do have an environment where everyone is trying to jostle right, for a position. And people can become very ambitious and they can become very skillful at doing their best to position themselves to get the attention of the teacher. You have males and females that are engaged in that kind of competitive uh, environment. Now, are you anyone, okay, <laughs> Are you going to say, let's say, if you are such a, a teacher, right? And, uh, and literally, right, you know that many of your students are, are willing voluntarily to give of themselves to you uh, at your call because they are convinced that some benefit, benefit, some advantage, th that they will get something out of that. Uh, look, it sounds a, a bit comical, perhaps, uh, if you are an outsider, but that is very much part of that mentality, to believe that there will be some benefit to you. And some of it is 
is sincere. Some of it is sincere, tainted with naivete. Some of it is sincere, tainted with ambition. The kind of ambition that says, you know, I am willing to do almost anything in order to be in this innermost sanctum, this innermost circle where I will have the attention, right, the eye, the care, the instruction, that personal contact with this teacher because I will benefit from this somehow. And I hope that uh, I benefit from it in a genuine way, that I do learn something from it, that my ego is actually, you know, uh, liberated, that my ego is uh, gradually perhaps uh, destroyed uh, and shaped uh, into a more humble, humble version. It's worth sharing with you that this very competitive situation, this uh, uh, kind of uh, environment and co competition for the teacher that I'm referring to is nothing unique to this particular school, the Shambhala centers. This kind of uh, dynamic can be easily found in almost uh, any Zen center where you have uh, that kind of power structure where the teacher is the foremost authority and uh, and you have students that very much are competing most likely for the robe of transmission. If you don't know what that is, it's, it's literally a, a robe. And you are empowered to be now, uh, well, in a leadership position uh, representing that particular lineage out to the world. But in order to get that robe, you have to be put through the windmill of years and years and years of practice and of uh, student, uh, student and teacher type of one-on-ones uh, where the teacher uh, literally pulverizes you into uh, the kind of uh, uh, right uh, kind of mindset and uh, to be worthy of that robe that he is going to empower you with. I was a witness to this situation in a Zen center here in Los Angeles where that competitive dynamic was clearly visible. And uh, look, th this is actually a, uh, a center that is very dedicated to practice. The teacher is a, uh, what I consider a, a very good teacher very dedicated teacher, um, sincere teacher. He's also human, like we are all human and uh, vulnerable to the very same things that all of us are vulnerable to. But that competitive dynamic for his attention that I am trying to share with you uh, for that robe of transmission that Zen students uh, seek and want creates a very interesting type of situation, all right? Now, I did not experience any kind of uh, blatant abuses other than um, some stories that people did share with me that were, I found uh, interesting. But for the most part, 
interesting in the sense of uh, wow, okay, well that's an, an, an interesting kind of uh, <coughs> of relationship to have with one's teacher that uh, could, uh, seen from this perspective, could be of benefit. Now, are some students, for example, in this particular Zen community, hurt by that student-teacher relationship? Are they sometimes, uh, well, injured emotionally because their teacher is perhaps a little too tough on them, <coughs> a little too direct with them? Yes, of course, it happens. And, uh, you know, these students have a choice, don't they? But uh, uh, should that tradition, that school, change its traditions in order to accommodate the sensitivities of some students? Should the teacher ease up on that student-teacher confrontational type of style that a lot of Zen schools and teachers adopt and practice that's traditional to their schools in order to accommodate the sensitivities of their students, in order to uh, prevent them from experiencing emotional trauma and uh, emotional crises that do result as a consequence of that interaction with too tough of a teacher? Hell no. Why should it actually <laughs> change in order to soften up the blow that the student experiences as a result of that uh, exchange? Uh, that is, I f would find, kind of uh, absurd. Now, the more interesting question that I think is really worth exploring and thinking about is whether these schools that have these unique student-teacher relationships will continue to survive in light of the increased secularization of our society. As people in our society find the appeal of utilizing the mind technologies that Buddhism has shared with the world the teachings, the practices, and so forth, as these practices become more and more secularized and the cultural right, and power structure baggage that is there is not able to sustain that exposure, whether the, those unique aspects, as you would find in Zen schools and in Tibetan schools, are they going to survive that impact? The verdict is still out there on this concern. It's still to be determined. I suppose that we'll see uh, in the future what takes place. But if one looks at what is going on in Japan, it's a little bit disturbing. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of schools, a lot of Zen schools are not uh, growing. A lot of them are shutting down, and that uh, passing on of the lineage is, uh, well, is experiencing somewhat of a crisis. But back to the central focus of this podcast, the present crisis within the Shambhala 
community and the allegations against its leader, the Sakyan Mipam. In no way am I trying to or will try to communicate to you that these allegations should not be taken seriously, that they should not be investigated. Actually, the contrary is true. Every indication is there from the leadership that these investigations are being addressed in a sincere and open manner. The central leadership uh, council has resigned and uh, one can expect that some changes will be forthcoming. Uh, let's hope that they are for the better, that they address the uh, power structure that is there and that it should be uh, reformed to fit more with a Western leadership kind of structure that we would find in uh, a lot of the Protestant uh, religious organizations which are more democratic and uh, uh, transparent and less uh, uh, power centralized. But uh, we will see what takes place. Some final thoughts here to wrap this up. I really want to address how it is that I'm personally seeing this from just one point of view. Okay. One of the things that attracted me to Buddhism was how it is so focused on addressing the question of human suffering, of human dissatisfaction, uh, that it is uniquely focused on its understanding, on what we can do as humans to address it, not just at the intellectual level, but down to the very core of our own uh, experience that it did not in any way attempt to sugarcoat certain facts, inevitable facts about my own life that I will continue to experience suffering and dissatisfaction and I will continue to experience and be faced with innumerable obstacles until I cease living. That at no point, even after the achievement of liberation or even a significant part of, of liberation, that that suffering in this world, in this lifetime, will go away. We might benefit from seeing it in a different light. Right? We might benefit from, as a consequence of our practice and our understanding, and uh, whatever wisdom that arises out of that, that we may see that suffering, suffering uh, with a quality of lightness about it, more transparently, so that that uh, solid and dragging and, uh, uh, well, nihilistic and depressing quality of it is does not really 
grip us as much as it used to. So in light of this perspective, of this committed uh, focus from Buddhism, some of the way that adults might be uh, relating to these kind of abuses, I think that they, we could fairly bring them under scrutiny, scrutiny. I'm not referring to specific allegations. I'm just referring that in general, as adults, when we participate in any aspect of our life, when we, when we make any choices, that we should be mature enough to see that there, there's something that we create, that some conditions are set in motion that have some consequence or some fruition. And that if someone wants to have sex with you because it will free you from your ego and having sex with this person, with this teacher, will crush your ego into liberation. Don't be on the, don't be a sucker. Huh? If you're not ready to actually accept the consequence of that, as an adult, huh, you have every right and every opportunity to say no. I'm not talking here about people that need professional assistance. Okay, I'm assuming here that uh, these are adults. So if you accept the too generous offer from a teacher, know what you're doing, which requires knowing yourself. But if you do know yourself at this level, you probably are going to decline the offer no matter the consequences. Perhaps the consequences are that you are going to be cut off from the inner sanctum, right? from having access to the teacher as, as much as you would like to. Or if you accept the offer, you perhaps have a very healthy relationship, a very confident relationship with your own sexuality. And so you are very capable then of accepting whatever consequences of that choice result. Anything else? Well, uh, as I said, you probably need to find some good psychological counseling. And any reasonable teacher, <coughs> I hope, and one can doubt this, yes, we could, would probably recommend professional help to that student and not uh, be so, so brute as to take advantage of that vulnerability. Okay, um, that first one can fall under the category of, hey, don't deceive yourself. Right? Because as adults, as responsible adults, it doesn't work. If you do accept the too generous offer of 
engaging in a sex right, exchange with your teacher for the benefit of uh, the destruction of your ego, right, for the liberation of your ego, or whatever, right, know, know yourself. Uh, and know that you won't have any excuses for what happens next. All right, this, this could fall under the category of don't make excuses for yourself once you decide upon a given course. So what happens next? Well, it really doesn't matter, does it? Um, it doesn't and uh, it should matter because you're willing to accept the consequences of your choices and whatever it is. And this can fall under the, under the responsibility of take responsibility for yourself as an adult, as a student, uh, even as a student with a teacher that might uh, be interested in you as a sexual type of thing. Lastly, I'd like to wrap this up by tying it up with the Me Too movement. I'd like to believe that we all believe that the Me Too movement can change the work environment in that uh, it will address the kind of abuses that no one should be exposed to that have uh, perhaps uh, an impact on one's livelihood and that there needs to be procedures in place that can um, address this when it happens and that people will feel secure and safe enough to do so, to bring it to the surface and also that uh, due process that uh, can be there also to protect those from being maliciously and falsely accused. Uh, I don't know of anybody that would disagree with that. Having said this, then one should ask the question if it's possible for this Me Too movement to be taken to an extreme. And the answer to that is, of course. Of course it's possible. Any movement such as this is possible to be taken to an extreme. And we need to know what that extreme is, what it will look like when it does, so that we can say, uh, no, this has been taken too far. Uh, if you disagree with that possibility, I can't help you, but uh, you should know that uh, it's something that is very real. In addition, uh, should we, as persons, be sheltered, be protected from those kind of uh, pursuits, those kind of uh, situations when people will hit up on you and solicit your interest, your attention, even your, your sex. And they do it not in an aggressive manner, but they do suggest that and they may indeed court you. Uh, should you be protected from that? I don't think so.
On top of that, we can layer the question of if you belong to a community whose central teachings are the teachings of the Buddha, whose central focus is addressing the question of suffering and discomfort and dissatisfaction in life and teachings that inform us that all experiences have the seed of this suffering and dissatisfaction and teachings that make it clear to us that no matter how uncomfortable and painful and uh, uh, unsettling a situation and experiences uh, either externally or internally that we need to learn to practice being able to experience that fully, rest with it, and uh, not push it away, not destroy it, and not uh, be uh, indifferent to it. And we can just go on with this. We can also add that these very teachings also put us as persons, as individuals, at the very center of our own path that make us individually responsible for uh, our own understanding, for our practice, and that uh, others can help us and others can be beneficial to us, such as teachers and our fellow Sangha members, but that ultimately we are accountable to ourselves and to uh, our actions. And if all of a sudden that level of responsibility is watered down in order to accommodate personal discomfort in a way that uh, is not going to be helpful to ourselves and also in a way that uh, is going to shelter us from the difficulty and the challenge that at times it means to work with others, including our teacher. Well then, at that point, it's valid to ask questions having to do with the extent of the Me Too movement. Okay, this is getting a little too long. I really need to wrap this up. There's much, much more that can be said, but uh, it uh, <laughs> has to wait for another podcast. I need to make a disclaimer that uh, should go as follows. I am not in any way a spokesperson for the Shambhala community. I am not a teacher with the Shambhala community. I am not even at present a meditation instructor with the Shambhala community. I have not been empowered in any way. So let that be clear. I do consider myself to be a student of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And at one point, I did have a student-teacher relationship with the Vajra Regent Orso Tenzin. In addition to that, I'd like to say that I sincerely wish that uh, these allegations be properly addressed and that the changes to be made are for the better of the organization and the community and that the Sakyan Mipam, as per the new leadership council, 
continues to be a key representative of his father's teachings, teachings that if you have had the opportunity to read, you would no doubt believe that uh, are a gift to humanity. And I'd like to thank you for sticking with me till the end of this podcast. Please keep in mind that uh, it's my third podcast and uh, I'm learning as I go. So I hope that the train of thought is not too scattered and unorganized. And by all means, please do rate the podcast station Untangling with Aureliano Nava. And if you're so inspired, leave a written review of it and subscribe to the podcast channel so that you are notified when I publish my next podcast. Thank you.